If you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 9. We're continuing to make our way through the book of Genesis. More sort of specifically over the last handful of weeks, we've been working our way through the flood account. And today's passage is kind of the, the epilogue or the conclusion to that account. We'll look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. So if you've got a Bible, you can situate yourself there. Um, there's, a, there's, there's like a national symbol in Japan, which is... It's kind of a unique symbol. In fact, if you, if you take any group of people and you kind of examine the things that they hold up as, as symbols, you can get a sense for what's important to a group of people. Um, and so in Japan, in one particular train station, there's a statue of a dog. And the story of that dog actually goes back to 1923. Uh, family on a farm in Japan, has a litter of puppies, and a university professor arrives to adopt one of those puppies. He ends up getting the eighth born out of that litter. He names the dog Hachiko, which literally means eighth prince. And he takes that dog home. Uh, I assume he gets it trained to, you know, like whatever, I have a puppy. So whatever the capacity is where you feel comfortable with that animal in public, he gets it trained to there. And then they start a routine that they carry on uh, for almost two years, which is that this university professor would need to take a train in order to get to where he taught. So he would walk with Hachiko to the train station. He would get on the train, and then Hachiko would walk himself back home, hang out there for the day, and then meet him back at the train station when he was done uh, teaching for the day. They did that every day for almost two years, and... One day, the university professor and Hachiko walk themselves to the train station. He gets on the train and leaves. Hachiko goes home, but while he's lecturing in class, he has a brain aneurysm and he passes away. Hachiko doesn't know that. He shows back up to the train station that evening and his owner never arrives. And so... Uh, this man's family, they tried to rehome the dog a couple of times, but the dog would do the same thing every single day. He would run away to the train station in the morning, wait there all day long for his owner to arrive, and then walk himself back to his owner's old house. And then whoever had currently been trying to care for the dog would have to go to that house, pick the dog up, and bring it home. And he did that every day for seven years. Uh, he became like a national icon. One of the professor's former students wrote an article about this dog that got published in one of Japan's biggest newspapers, and people would come from all over Japan to this one train station to see Hachiko, and he'd be sitting there every single day waiting for his owner to finally come home uh, and get off the train. He did that every day for seven years, and then one day on the way home from the train station, Hachiko passed away. And what ended up happening in Japan is that he became this like national symbol. They built a bronze statue and they put it in this train station. It's there to this day. And Hachiko in like national sort of folklore is actually called Chuken, which means faithful one. And that says something about what uh, certainly not just sort of like the general captured imagination of this one dog, but if you know anything about Japanese culture, like loyalty or faithfulness is, 
is very important to them as a, as a people. And so this dog that would go to this train, run away from whoever was keeping it and go to this train station every day for seven years becomes this very powerful symbol to their entire nation. We're going to talk about faithfulness this morning. It's not seven years worth of faithfulness. It's not one person's lifetime worth of faithfulness. We're going to talk about the Lord's eternal faithfulness to his people. And that faithfulness is mediated to us biblically in the form of covenants. And so if you've got Genesis 9 opened up there in front of you, I'm going to read verse 8 through 17. It says this. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that come out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I've placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures of the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, that you move toward your people with perfect faithfulness. You've done so in Christ. We see the cross and we have a visible reminder of your covenant faithful to us, faithfulness to us. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to cherish that faithfulness. You'd help us to cherish your mercy. Would you open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to the wonder and the beauty of what it means that you would make promises to your people and always keep them. God, help us to see that this morning and to cherish it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here is the landing spot this morning, that God is eternally faithful to his covenant promises. God is eternally faithful to his covenant promises. We've been sort of like pointing our way forward toward talking about covenants and like mentioned them in a, a few previous weeks. This morning, we need to like lay a foundation for what are we talking about when we talk about covenants. The Bible is organized uh, around a series of covenants in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus and this new covenant now on this side of the cross. And if we're really going to understand who God is and how he acts, we need to understand covenants. The challenge is that's not a word that we're very familiar with. Whereas Old Testament peoples were very comfortable with the language of covenant, we are more comfortable with the language of contract. And while those two things are similar, they actually have some pretty significant differences. And so as a way to sort of like set this up, here's the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract, like we are typically uh, familiar with and comfortable with, is formed from a place of distrust. 
I don't trust you to do the thing that you said you're going to do. You don't trust me to do the thing that I said I'm going to do. So we put our names on some pieces of paper that sort of obligate us to one another in such a way as to limit our liabilities. What is the extent of what I owe you? And how do we curb that so that you don't take more from me than I'm willing to give and uh, I don't take from you more than you're willing to give? And we sign a contract. And that contract is binding unless both parties agree to void it. A covenant is different. A covenant is formed out of a place of trust. I'm trusting you to do fill in the blank, and you're trusting me to do fill in the blank. The Bible is full of covenants that come with mutual responsibility. So the point of the covenant is not to limit liability. It's to spell out exactly what am I responsible to or for and what are you responsible for. And we just trust that the other person will uphold their end of the bargain. And you cannot break a contract. You can't void it. It needs to be fulfilled. There can be consequences for not upholding your side of the responsibility. There are blessings that go to both parties, but there can be consequences if you break it. And so when we're talking about a covenant, if you just took like the sort of dictionary definition of a covenant, it's this, that a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Covenants in our mind, as if, if you're like familiar with church or you're a follower of Jesus, there's something that we typically think of in terms of God and humanity. God makes covenants with his people. But in the Old Testament era, specifically within like the era of the patriarchs, covenant was like a very broad term. Covenants could be made between two individuals. Covenants could be made between two nations on behalf of entire peoples. Covenants could be made between a king or a ruler and his people or his subjects. Typically, those covenants involved blessings for both parties, responsibilities for both parties, and then there would be a spelling out of the consequences if you broke the covenant. I've said this a few times over over the last few weeks as we've sort of looked forward to covenants, but when God makes a covenant with people, he's binding himself to those people. So if that's the general definition of a covenant, a divine covenant as we see them in scripture is this, that it is an act of grace whereby God binds himself by his character and his word to humanity or a group of people in a way that brings humanity blessing in God glory. Now you say, that's like word salad, Tim. There's a lot of commas and phrases and clauses in there. Yeah, it's worth trying to be accurate. What are we talking about when we talk about a covenant? We're talking about God binding himself to humanity or to a group of people by his character and his word in such a way that humanity is blessed and God is glorified. So when we talk about covenants, it's worth pointing out God is fundamentally unable to break the terms of a covenant. Why? Well, because by his character and his word, he's saying, this is what I am going to do. And he cannot be unfaithful to that. God is not faithful for seven years or faithful for one person's lifetime, like Noah, who he makes a covenant with. He's eternally faithful across all time. And his character makes it so that he, he can't go against that. His word makes it so that if he makes a promise, he's going to keep a promise. God's not lacking in anything. And so he does not need the blessings of a covenant. So when God makes a covenant with 
a, a person or with humanity, typically what you see is that humanity receives all of the blessing and God assumes all of the obligations or the responsibilities. Now, there are covenants where humanity is said, if you do this, then God will do this. But typically, the scales are very unbalanced. God is doing far more than he's asking of humanity. And humanity is receiving all the blessings while God is not lacking in anything in himself and thus does not need whatever the blessings of that covenant are. There are four big covenants in the Old Testament. There's the one we're looking at today, covenant that God makes with Noah and with all of humanity through Noah, where he says there will never be judgment again via a flood. It will be an act of my mercy to never flood the earth again. God then makes a covenant with Abraham. That's the second covenant, our big covenant in the Old Testament, where he tells Abraham, you will be blessed, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God makes a covenant with Moses, whereby the Israelite people receive the law, and they are told, there will be blessing if you uphold this law, or there will be curse if you break this law. And then the fourth big Old Testament covenant is a covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he tells David, there will be this prophet king figure from your line who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Four big promises in the Old Testament. And then there's Jesus who brings in the new covenant. This morning, we're just looking at God's covenant with Noah. So if you've got Genesis open there in front of you, Verse 8, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. If you just sort of scan down the passage, that word establishing pops up three different times. Verse 9, establishing my covenant with you and your descendants. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. And verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. If you were to sit down and read the flood account, straight through, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, it's not the first time that you actually hear about this covenant. So you arrive in Genesis 9, verse 9, and you're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Haven't we already talked about this covenant? It's worth going back to look at. If you got a Bible there, flip back to chapter 8, or just kind of scan your eyes back to chapter 8. Verse 20 says that Noah, he came off the ark and he built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat. Summer and winter and day and night will not cease. That statement there from God is self-deliberative. So God, however you would picture sort of like the internal world of God, that statement God makes within his heart or within his mind or within the Trinity, like however you want to picture God doing that, in a self-independent And a self-deliberative way, God says, I'll never do this again. Noah does not hear that, though. So however much time passes between the building of that altar and the offering of those sacrifices and then Genesis chapter 9, Noah hears for the first time, I'll never wipe out 
humanity and all the creatures of the earth with a flood ever again. We read through it and we got this peek into like God's mind. Noah has not had that. And so here when God says, I'm establishing a covenant with you, he's establishing that which he has already determined within his heart and mind. He's like pronouncing to Noah that which he has already promised within himself. He's bringing to fruition that which already exists within him. He's confirming with Noah that which is already firm in his mind. Noah finds out about it for the first time. God has already determined it. And so God speaks it to Noah and says, I'm establishing this now, like publicly, outwardly, with you and your sons and all of your descendants after you. And this is what we learn about that covenant. We learn that God's covenant with Noah is universal. Again, there's repetition here within Genesis chapter 9. Verses 9, 10, 12, 15, 16, and 17 talk about all of your descendants, all the generations, all the creatures of the earth, the whole earth. Over and over again, God is being clear that this covenant is for all of creation, humanity, creatures, the earth as a whole. We hit on this last week, but I want to highlight it with some specificity this week. God makes a covenant with and through Noah that he will show uh, mercy to all of humanity by not flooding the earth again. What's the implication there? That despite the fact that the consequences of sin would merit flooding, like repeatedly, Just like before the flood, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. After the flood, God says that every inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. He could flood again. But in his mercy, he's saying to Noah, I won't do it. I will not bring judgment upon the earth in that form ever again. Mankind, every person, every people group, every nation, every tribe, regardless of who they are, where they live, or the extent of their willful and overt sinfulness. All of humanity will experience the common grace and mercy of God in that he will not flood the earth again. That's the covenant that God is making. The cosmic reality of sin is like off the rails. But God says, in my love and in my mercy, I won't act in this kind of judgment ever again. And everyone will be the beneficiary. The covenant is also unilateral. When we read Genesis, we want to do the best job we can to read it through the eyes of like an ancient audience and how they would have understood it. And when they would have read through this, their understanding of covenants was bilateral. We both have responsibilities. We both have obligations. We both receive blessings. There could be consequences for both of us if we don't uphold our end of the covenant. And they would have read through this and said, now hold on, hold on, hold on. This is way one-sided. Like, God is receiving all of the obligation. He will not do anything to flood the earth like this ever again. Humanity is receiving all the blessing. You just exist and you can continue to exist and trust that I will never flood the earth again. God gets nothing out of the deal, but he does all of the acting. That doesn't make sense. Covenants are mutual responsibility. This is unilateral. God's receive, are up, taking on all of the responsibility and all of the obligation. We know that because of the absence of something in the text. 
There's never an if-then statement. If you do this, then I will do this. God's covenant with Noah is one direction. All the commitment is on God's end without any commitment on humanity's. What God has to say in verses 1 through 7 about human flourishing and thriving and not murdering one another, that's not a condition for God to not flood the earth again. It is not, if you don't kill one another, then I will not flood the earth. It is, here's how you thrive. Keep that in mind. But despite the fact that I know that you're sinful, I will never flood the earth again. It's all one-sided. It's unilateral. God will show mercy to humanity, and humanity does not need to do anything to receive it. The earth will never be flooded again. And God says, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm binding myself to you. I'm making a commitment to you that I will never bring a flood. And last, God's covenant with Noah is unending. Again, there's repetition. Verse 11, never again. Verse 12, all future generations. Verse 14, whenever I form clouds in the sky. Verse 16, a permanent covenant with you. Genesis 9 wants us to understand this is an unending promise. It isn't that God is saying he won't flood the earth again while Noah's alive. It isn't that God is saying he won't flood the earth again until the Messiah comes. It's God saying, I will never bring judgment for sin in the form of a flood ever again. (coughs) Not one time. And then in verses 14 and 15, he gives a sign for that covenant. He says this, whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. That sign in the clouds is a declaration that God will remember. We talked a couple weeks ago about what it means when you get this very particular construction of God remembering Zachar and then a people. I will remember my covenant between me and you. This falls into that same camp. That when God remembers something like that, it means he's moving toward his people in covenant faithfulness. It is an action, not just like an intellectual thing. It is not God saying, look, when light refracts off of water particles in the air in a very particular way, I will be reminded, ha, I'm supposed to stop this rain. That's not what this covenant symbol is. This covenant symbol is a visual reminder that God is moving toward his people toward humanity in covenant faithfulness. I said I would stop the rain and there would never be a flood that wipes out every creature. And when you see that, you can know for sure that I remember that I will stop that rain before it floods. But that bow in the clouds is also a declaration that Noah is to remember that God remembers. So every time that rainbow appears in the clouds, Noah is supposed to remember that God is moving toward his people in faithfulness to his covenant promises. The Old Testament particularly is full of symbols that function in that sort of way. Passover is maybe the best example of that. The 10th plague in the book of Exodus is the plague of the firstborn, where every firstborn in Egypt will be struck down as the angel of the Lord moves through these Egyptian neighborhoods. And the Israelite people are told that they're to take a lamb, unblemished, 
slaughter that lamb at a particular time and put some blood on the doorposts. And in Exodus chapter 12, we're told this, the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you, not for God. Look, God's not confused about where the Israelites live. Oh man, I can't remember who inhabits this home. Are they Israelite or are they Egyptian? No, the blood is a reminder for the Israelites, a distinguishing mark that when God moves through your neighborhood, this angel, the same way that it's going to move through these Egyptian neighborhoods, he is going to be faithful to his promise to pass over your home. You need to remember that God remembers. Wipe that blood on the doorposts of your home. This rainbow is the same way. God is going to be faithful. And every time Noah or anyone since sees that rainbow in the clouds, there's this reminder that God is faithful to move toward his people in accordance to his character and his word and his promises. It's a sign, a symbol of the covenant. I want to pause here for just a moment. It would be, I think, a little like contextually and pastorally tone deaf to not take a moment and acknowledge that the rainbow is one of the more emotionally charged symbols in American society today. That sign has become ground zero for culture warring here in our nation. And the why behind that essentially boils down to a matter of identity. For followers of Jesus, that rainbow is a covenant symbol. It's one of just a handful of symbols given by God to remind his people about who he is and thus who they are. It reminds us of God being this covenant faithful God who moves toward his people in response to his promises and that we are the people who receive those promises. That's a, that's a powerful symbol for followers of Jesus. For those in the LGBTQIA plus community, the rainbow has become a symbol and a statement about who they are. And so when those two things, particularly in the month of June, come smashing into one another, you've got groups of people on both sides within our culture and in our context who say that symbol says a lot about the core of who I am as an individual. And neither side wants to budge on those things. And typically what happens is that the argument or the disagreement about how do we interpret this symbol becomes saddening and disheartening for both sides of that struggle. What I would kind of want to offer this morning just pastorally to us as a church is that symbols have meaning to the communities that gather around them. So that covenant symbol of the rainbow has a meaning to followers of Jesus. But oftentimes, the same symbol can mean different things to different groups of people. For instance, if you were to see me running down the road one day and you honked at me as a way to say, hey, hi, toot toot, I see you, I will probably give you a peace sign. Hey, I see you too. And just sort of depending on like what my hands are doing at the moment. It could be this way. It could be that way. It could be both. Cool. 
If I were running down the road in Australia or New Zealand or Great Britain or Ireland and somebody gave me a little toot toot and I said, hey, I just flipped them off. Like, listen here, buddy. Don't ever honk at me again. If something were wrong with my microphone up here and I'm fumbling for it to, like, sound right and I look back at Brandon and I see that he's looking down at the board trying to sort out the issue and then he looks up at me and gives me a thumbs up I know we're sorted out and everything's good now but if I were in Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan and I'm fumbling around with my microphone and the guy back there gives me a thumbs up he just flipped me off like hey you figure it out buddy like this is your problem (laughs) the symbol means different thing in a different context to a different group of people who gathers around that symbol And so for followers of Jesus, the Bible tells us that the rainbow is a symbol. It's a reminder of the universal, unilateral, unending covenant promise that God has made with all humanity to never bring judgment by flood ever again. And when NBC uses a rainbow in their logo, it does not change what that rainbow means biblically to the community of people who follow Jesus. When reading rainbow, take a look, it's in a book. Reading rainbow, and that thing, that little star, like, flies across the sky, and it's got, like, the rainbow tail behind it, right? Okay, to LeVar Burton, that means my show and my paycheck, right? But that doesn't change what the rainbow biblically means to followers of Jesus as we gather together and celebrate a God who is faithful to his covenant promises, The Roman Empire continued crucifying criminals for 400 years after Jesus died on the cross. And pretty much right away, the cross became a symbol of of who Christians were. But for 400 years, criminals continued to be crucified along roadsides in Roman towns. And so, for the general Roman populace, that cross meant capital punishment. It was like a fear symbol used by the Roman Empire. To followers of Jesus, it meant... That's our Savior and what he's done to save his people. It can mean different things. I say all of that to say this. Some people will ignore, reject, or even mock the Christian understanding of this symbol in our country. We can be saddened by that. But brother or sister in Christ, I don't think we should probably be shocked or outraged. Instead, I think we ought to remind ourselves that as followers of Jesus, we are not called primarily to be protectors of God's covenant symbols. We are called to be proclaimers of God's covenant faithfulness. And so how we can interact in that space as that sort of battle wages is to say, look, that symbol can mean two different things to two different groups of people. And one group of people's interpretation of that symbol does not impact my interpretation of that symbol. And so I can enter into that space and say, let me tell you what that rainbow means to me and let me tell you about a God who's faithful to his covenant promises. In in the midst of our culture, we can be people who just humbly yet confidently and firmly proclaim God's covenant faithfulness as it relates to a symbol that means one specific thing to us. And I think that has the the potential to be a powerful thing in the midst of that sort of swirling battle here in our culture and in our context. Back, Back to our text explicitly. 
I want to make some important distinctions about this covenant that God makes with Noah. The first is this, is that this covenant is not a declaration that there will never again be judgment. God's not saying that he's going to cease to be just or that he's going to stop judging sin. His very character would make that sort of declaration impossible. This is mercy and grace and love intersecting with with justice. Judgment will still exist, but it will never take the form of a flood again. And so the rest of the biblical picture shows us that God executes judgment in several ways. There's judgment throughout the Old Testament. There's judgment for sin that falls upon Jesus on the cross. We're told in Revelation that there will be judgment for sin that comes at the end of all things. But God is faithful to his covenant promises, and it will never be a flood. He is just, and he cannot not be just. He's loving and gracious, and he cannot not be loving and gracious. He's faithful, and he cannot not be faithful. And in all of God's covenants, you see the fullness of his being come together. He makes a covenant, and he cannot alienate part of himself in any aspect of that covenant. Second, this covenant is not a declaration that everyone will be saved. The universal nature of God's covenant not to flood the earth does not exclude the particularity of salvation. I'll say that again. The universal nature of God's covenant not to flood the earth does not exclude the particularity of salvation. God's going to make a covenant with one man and his family, Abraham, and he's going to continue to honor that covenant via the particular descendant lines of some of Abraham's children, Isaac, Jacob. And Jesus is clear that the new covenant will save some, but not all. There will be a separation, sheep from goats, wheat from chaff. And so the universal nature of this covenant is that all will experience the mercy of not being flooded. That's what's being promised. It's not a cancellation of judgment nor a guarantee of universal salvation. Last distinction. This covenant is not a declaration that it will never rain again. Look outside. In fact, God goes so far in verse 14 as to say that he will form clouds again. It will rain. But he wants Noah to know that he doesn't need to look around and say, where'd we park the boat? Like everyone scurry back. The rain has started again, right? It's going to rain, but that rain will be held in check. And in the same way that God opened the storehouses of the watery depths to bring the flood, he will shut them to be sure that there's never another humanity erasing flood event. That's the promise. He has the power to do both. God makes a covenant with all of humanity through Noah. There's a scene in the book of Joshua that illustrates the way I want to apply this as we close here. In Joshua chapter 4, the Israelite people, uh, they cross the Jordan River on dry ground into the promised land. And it is this picture of like God's faithfulness to bring his people to the land that he has promised. And it gives this powerful callback to what happens at the Red Sea as as Israel runs out of Egypt. And so God tells Joshua, while the water is all stacked up there, stopped up so that Israel can walk through, when the last person gets through, God tells Joshua, have 12 guys go back and get a rock out of the middle of the dry riverbed. One man from each tribe. And so one person goes down and they grab these rocks and they carry them over to a city. And when Israel sets up camp in that city, God says, tell them to build them into a memorial or a monument. Stack those stones up. And then God is very explicit about why. He says that so in future generations, when someone looks at that pile of stones and says, what's up with the rocks right there? 
you've got an opportunity to tell them about the faithfulness of God to bring his people into the promised land according to his promises. And that little tower of rocks will stand as a monument for all generations. It's a symbol that's supposed to remind them of the faithfulness of God to do what it is that he has promised to do. The blood on the doorposts is a symbol to remind the people of God that God is faithful to do what it is that he said that he would do. On this side of Jesus, the cross is a symbol that God is faithful to do what he promised he would do. That, that's what we have in the cross. And so the application this morning is very simple. There's like not three things to like go away and do this. It's simply this, that the cross is a continual reminder of God's great mercy. When you open your Bible, you've got two testaments. If you want to get really technical about the language, what you've got are two covenants. Old Testament is what we call it. The literal translation there would be Old Covenant. New Testament is what we call it. The literal translation would be New Covenant. Hebrews 8 and 9 talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the responsibilities and the li- are the consequences of the Old Covenant and the blessings and the privileges of the New Covenant. Like we said at the very beginning, a covenant can't be voided. It can be only be like built upon, fulfilled. And so what we have in the New Testament or the New Covenant is not a canceling of the old, but a fulfilling. And so you've got in Jesus the mediator of God's mercy to his people. God's merciful. When you look at the cross, you get a reminder of God's mercy to you. We would deserve judgment for sin, but instead it has fallen upon Jesus. Jesus is how every nation on the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant made with Abraham. It is through him, the proclamation of the gospel, to every tribe, nation, and tongue that all the nations of the earth are blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and all of its promises. He fulfills the covenant that God makes with Moses. Jesus is the prophet king from the line of David who will sit on the throne forever. Every time you look to the cross, there's a reminder that God will forever remember his faithfulness to you in Christ. In the Old Testament, there's a rainbow to visually remind humanity of mercy. On this side of Jesus, there's a cross. Mercy. And so how do you apply Genesis 9, 1 to 17 to your heart? Just remember. (laughs) Just remember the covenant faithfulness of God given to you in Jesus Christ. That's it. Make a stack of stones if you need to. Sing the words of particular songs if you need to. Gather together with the church body on Sundays and throughout the week to be reminded of the fact that God is faithful to his covenants. There's another symbol given to us, though, that helps us to remember this, and it's communion. In communion, we remind ourselves that we have not fulfilled the obligations of any of God's covenants, but he has, and he's done so in Jesus. We remind our eyeballs when we hold the elements that God is faithful to his covenant promises. We remind our taste buds and our brains and our hearts that God is faithful to his covenant promises, that he's been merciful to us in Christ. And so we're going to take communion. We're going to do this in a way that's different for us. 
the normal sort of flow of our services is we sing a couple songs, we dismiss the kids, we preach from the word, and then sometimes we take communion there all as a group, and then, you know, we sing a couple songs. As a church, we're not one that generally creates a lot of space for you to just sit and reflect, but that's what we want to do this morning. Keith and Meredith are going to play through a song. And we'll get the elements distributed during that song. And the words to the song aren't even going to be on the screen. Uh, This might be, like, awkward and feel really long to some of you. Uh, That's okay. What's going to be scrolling on the screen are passages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that talk about the faithfulness and the mercy of God. And all you're being asked to do for, like, the next five minutes is remember. Just remember the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. If you've not ever received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin, uh, it's okay to just let the tray pass by. Like that doesn't need to be weird. Doesn't need to be awkward. Most people in the room aren't even gonna see that happen. But I would invite you during this time, just read the verses on the screen and consider God's great mercy to humanity in Jesus. And consider whether or not you might need that mercy. If you are a Christian, this meal, communion, is for you. And it's a gentle correction to basically every way that our heart can get wayward on us. And so you may be in a spot this morning of feeling like there's some current sin struggle in your life or some past sin in your life that has disqualified you from the mercy of God. You're going to be holding in your hands the visible reminder that that is not true that there is no sin so great that Christ and his sacrifice for you does not cover, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like you're gonna be holding the elements in your hand. Just look and remember. You might be in a season of life where you feel like whatever your circumstances are, that God has either forgotten you or he's been unfaithful to you in some sort of way. The elements that you're going to be in your hand are the reminder he has not and he cannot and he will not and he does not. He remembers you, and he's faithful to you, and he's moved toward you in the person of Christ. This meal is a symbol and a reminder of that for you. You might be at a place in life where you think that your sort of like sanctification and your righteousness is to the place where God owes you what you hold in your hand. Communion is a reminder. He doesn't. Communion is a reminder that Jesus not only died for all of the sins that you have committed, but he also died for all of the sinful motivations for your righteousness. And that in the same way that his blood covers your outward acts of overt disobedience, his blood also covers the inward ugliness of your heart that might actually lead you to do things that look righteous. You're gonna be holding two elements that remind you of that. God is eternally faithful to his covenant promises. If you're someone who's gonna pass out these elements, will you come grab these, get them going uh, around the room? We'll get all of those distributed. I just wanna invite you for a few minutes. Just remember, if you know the song and you wanna sing along, that's great. If you wanna spend the time in prayer, that's great. If you wanna just read the verses, that's great. If you just wanna spend five minutes staring at two little elements in your hand, that's great. We'll take them all together here in a few minutes.